This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is poet Andrea Carter Brown. Andrea Carter Brown is the editor of the Washington Prize from The Word Works. She's the author of several books of poetry, including The Disheveled Bed, Brook and Rainbow, Domestic Karma. She's won contests. Her work has been recognized by the River Oak Review, Thin Air, and the Poetry Society of America, among others. Her latest book is called September 12. She's a former resident of downtown Manhattan. On the morning of 9-11, she fled her apartment a block away from the World Trade Center amidst the destruction, not knowing if or when she would ever return. Here is my conversation with Andrea Carter Brown. Andrea Carter Brown, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I believe you're my first poet guest, so I'm making history today on my show. Wow. Well, I'm happy to be your first. This is exciting. (laughs) And it's always great to speak with a fellow New Yorker. I'm from Queens myself. We just recently moved to uh, Tennessee a couple of months ago, though. Oh, so you're just a recent import to the South. Correct. Uh, Where where are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, Uh, We moved here in 2004 largely in response to 9-11. Hmm. And we're going to get right into that because I do have a bunch of questions for you, some of them about poetry itself, but I think we should start off with your latest book, September 12. Why don't you first walk us through your personal experience, though, on 9-11? Like, take us back to that day over 20 years ago now. Where were you? What were you doing? <laughs> what was going through your mind? Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, I'll try to be, I'll, I'll give you the short, short version. Um, sure. The morning of 9-11, I was in my apartment a block from the World Trade Center in Battery Park City. I was just getting started, drinking coffee, reading the New York Times. My sister called me from North Carolina to ask me if I was okay. And I didn't know why she was calling. I was fine. There was nothing wrong, nothing going on. She said, a plane just flew into the North Tower, which she knew was we could see from our living room. And I hadn't heard anything. I had no idea. So I ran to the other end of the room and I looked out the living room windows and already uh, I could see flames at windows. I could see smoke. I could see people. Uh, at the windows and then falling. Hmm. It took me about, I stood there in shock for maybe a half a minute. It seemed like a lot longer. But I immediately felt that the towers, that tower would come down. I could not see the South Tower. As I was in crappy clothes, uh, I just grabbed what I thought I might need, and I fled. My cell phone was almost dead. 
because I had stupidly thought, I don't need to charge it overnight. You know, this is how we mm-hmm. used to live, not worried that we might need a fully charged cell phone at any moment. And uh, I lived, when I say I lived a block from the World Trade Center, I lived to the west of it. Battery Park City is the area that was built on of landfill hmm. where the oldest piers used to jut out into the Hudson. And those piers were rotting. They went back to the mid-19th century. And when they excavated the foundation for the World Trade Center, what they had to do something with all of that rock, and they dumped it among the rotting piers. Hmm. And it took about a decade for that landfill to settle. And then buildings started going up. And we lived in the in the apartment complex called Gateway Plaza, which was the first buildings to go up in that new land uh, and the closest to the World Trade Center. When we first moved in, I'm straying a bit, but we moved in in 1987 we were the only apartment building in that whole area. Hmm. And when we would take walks along the river, the rest of the land you could still see was landfill settling with weeds coming up from it and chunks of concrete and rebar and stone barely covered over with soil. Anyway, if I had fled the way everybody else fled, I would have had to get very close to the towers to get away from them. And I saw stuff falling and I was really frightened. And I thought, well, this is stupid. So I headed south instead along the water, Hmm. along the water because to me, I could jump in, maybe naively thinking that I could tread water. The water was quite turbulent that morning because it was windy, but anyway. And I ended up at the Staten Island Ferry Terminal where if I had kept going, I would have again stayed, been close to the building. So, and coincidentally, there was a, the last regularly scheduled ferry was at the pier. Hmm. And at, this is 10 o'clock, they loaded us onto the ferry. The us was me and mostly office workers who lived on Staten Island. The whole time I fled south along the water, I, there was nobody else. It was, you know, I, I, anyway. And while we were sitting on the ferry waiting for it to depart, the north, the south tower came down and the ferry was engulfed in black smoke. Mm. So thick, so dense that the, the pilings that the ferry was moored to disappeared. So you couldn't see a few few feet away from you. That was the most immediate moment that I thought that I might die. Hmm. Because, of course, we were prisoners on that ferry. We were all wearing life preservers. Cell phones, I'm sure you know this, did not work because the cell phone towers on top of the North Tower, of course, were destroyed. Right. Uh, And what what, uh, subsidiary... towers were left were so over jammed with traffic that, you know, you just couldn't reach anybody. And so we sat there in that black cloud for about 10 minutes. And then the ferry motor started up and we, we pulled out from the pier 
you couldn't see where you were going. We pulled out maybe a hundred yards. It's a little hard, you know, obviously to say. And then we stopped again and we sat there for another 10 minutes. And then eventually we started up again and we headed to Staten Island. Uh, about halfway across the harbor, the, we emerged from the tower, from the, from the cloud. Hmm. Still couldn't see anything, but at least by then I could see the Statue of Liberty. And uh, around 10.30, little after, we pulled into the Staten Island berth. And then my adventure really began. So um, the rest of the day was a circuitous route, walking car, truck, a different car, a different car, more walking to be re- reunited with my husband that night, who was coincidentally in Westchester for a business meeting. Hmm. Normally, he would have been home and heading to work right around the time that the towers came down. So about four hours into that day, early in the afternoon, I finally reached him. And he had thought that I was dead up until then. Wow. So, but you know, it's a tale of survival. It's particular to my experience. I felt pretty early on while everybody else was watching the iconic plane going into the tower and then the towers collapsing in place and the the smoke and the dust billowing out i saw it from a different perspective and that so what everybody else was seeing was not my experience and then i started to realize that my experience was in many ways different from other people's and that made me determined to tell it partly to contribute to the historical record you know to add to the particularity of the historical memory right so that it didn't get glazed over into this place where you went and you went the same place every time and then you became numb to it. You know, I'm always amazed at all the stories that keep emerging throughout the years. Like they, I don't know if you've seen, I forgot what channel it's on, but they, they did a whole series on different firefighters and yes, it was fantastic. hundreds, yeah. hundreds of stories. Yeah. And, I don't, and I'm always moved by it. They had the one about with, that I think was narrated by Tom Hanks about all the boats that came. I mean, it's just amazing, amazing. I mean, it's a horrific story. And I remember none of us New Yorkers will forget where we were that day. You know, I mean, I, I didn't live down there. I was living on Long Island at the time, but I just remember. Well, the you news. were close enough to feel like it was your story, your history. Right. And yeah. for days, uh, we would see the smoke go all the way out to Nassau County where we were like the smoke was for days kept. We just kept seeing all this black smoke uh, floating in the air. And, and did you say you actually saw people fall from, from your window? Like you were able to see that. Oh gosh. Yeah. I, I, uh, it's, it's amazing to me that I saw that in some ways my hearing either shut down when I said I didn't hear anything, but I don't remember sounds. I remember, I don't remember hearing Hmm. 
uh, sirens. I don't remember hearing ambulances, anything. But those people at windows, which must have been, I don't know, 80th floor, 85th floor, Mm -hmm. really high up. I saw these individuals at these windows. And I actually saw, uh, I write about it in the, in the book, um, the, the two most memorable things that I saw in this part of the journey was I saw some of the windows were blown out by explosions that were going on inside the tower as the fuel exploded and the fires took hold. So I saw two young women, probably in their 20s, uh, at a window that had been blown out, climb up onto the sill next to each other. The windows were quite narrow, so mm-hmm. it would have held just two people. I don't think you could have gotten more in there. They sat on the sill. Their legs dangled outside. They Shoulders touching. They looked at each other. They held hands, and they jumped together. Wow. Then the other thing that I that I remember specifically was that a um, at another window where the glass had not yet been blown out, there was a man from an office taking a uh, an office chair, you know, not not with arms on it, a big office chair, lifting it up and hurling it at the glass to break the glass to get out wow. repeatedly. And then I left. There were bodies falling. There was debris falling. So what can I say? It was very difficult. Right. Those were those kinds of moments were the hardest to write. I uh, remember I remember wanting to visit Ground Zero shortly after. Like I think it was around Thanksgiving, Christmas time, like they had enough where you can kind of go down there. And I, I remember I, I took the train to Penn Station. And as soon as I got out, they had the bulletin boards of all the missing people oh. over there. And I was so overwhelmed with emotion. I just stopped my whole trip right there because I, I just I just realized, you know, it wasn't a news story anymore. And this is it was I was dealing with real people. And then, of course, throughout the years, you know, you meet people. I we we uh, we went to church with someone whose whose uh, husband died of cancer because he was working over there. My uncle was there every day for three months afterwards. He was a sergeant. He oh, has, oh. yeah, he battles cancer now, but he's doing okay. But you know, the cancer is directly you know related to that. Every day for three months, my brother-in-law, uh, he helped out there for for a little bit, and you know. It becomes more and more real as uh, you start meeting all the different people that were directly affected. And I can't imagine just being right there. How long did it take before you were actually able to come back to your apartment? They allowed us to go back four days later to get passports and meds and things like that for like a 10-minute visit. Mm -hmm. Um, And then for six months... You could get in and you had to meet with people from FEMA and the Red Cross. And we were very lucky. We had apartment insurance. 
So we had to meet our, our adjuster was there. Hmm. There were there were teams of uh, engineers that we brought in to test the air, the building. You had to throw. I mean, we threw out a ton of stuff. The uh, landlords were required to replace the kitchen appliances and the heating air conditioning units, and and they were supposed to replace <laughs> the carpeting in the hallways, and they were supposed to repaint over all the surfaces. Well, they didn't do that. Event about two months after nine eleven, uh, it was certified that you could live there again. Um, wow. But it was on, uh, there were emergency power supplies. There was no phones, no landline phone service. There were no services of any sort anywhere nearby. No transportation to get there because everything was closed off. Uh, people with, uh, without alternatives, some people moved back. Uh, I developed uh, within a month after 9-11, I developed very severe asthma really? from exposure to the dust. Wow. And uh, it and I was not under control uh, big time. And my doctors sort of took the decision of when to go back into their own hands and did not allow me to go back until early March. So okay. six months later. At that point, even then... They they didn't have enough heating units, which are made by GE. They needed thousands of them, so we didn't have heat when we moved back in. We uh, the day before we moved back in, we got a new bed. We had thrown out all of the upholstered furniture. We did have a new refrigerator because the refrigerators were a disaster because so much had spoiled in them. They were just right. not usable. But even after we moved back in, the ongoing work at the site that your relatives participated in, you know, what heroes and at what cost to themselves, that's what the entire area was. And you just couldn't go there without re-experiencing the loss, the sense of loss mm-hmm. of life, of everything. To enter and exit what was called officially ground zero, they had these um, washing stations that vehicles and people had to go through. And coincidentally, the to get into our building complex, we had to go in and out of these washing stations. So after I got sick, my husband started going down there and dealing with the people that he had to meet. And then, and then we're both part of this World Trade Center health registry now for different reasons, which I assume your relatives are too. I hope they are. And, you know, I thank the taxpayers who continue to fund it because I think it's important. Eventually, uh, we moved to California in, as I said, in 2004, late 2004, because it became apparent that life was never going to be normal there again for a very long time. And we just didn't, it was just 
unhealthy to keep living in that past, which mm-hmm. was inescapable. Um, and of the, the, in Gateway Plaza had 5,500 residents on the morning of September 11th. There were three tall towers and three uh, flanking lower wings. The following spring, 500 had moved back. Wow. So we were very glad that we were renters because we had options. People, most of the buildings that were up by then, that had gone up from the time that I could still see landfill until then, were condos or co-ops. And, you know, the financial loss is the least important part of it. But since it's your home... It gets complicated. And um, so people had these homes and they didn't want to live in them. They had to keep paying for them. Wow. So um, anyway, it's uh, I hear stories, too, as I've taken this book out into the world. What you told me about your relatives is one of is is now another one. Uh, I recently reconnected with a college friend whom I hadn't seen in decades. He lives out here now, and he came to my book party. And at my book party on September 12th, he told me that his twin brother, whom I also knew, had been in the towers and had fled that morning. So that was like a close connection to mm-hmm. closer than I really had. Uh but it's true, you, f- you felt like you knew these people. You would see these flyers. You would read about them in the Portraits in Grief, in the New York Times. And they became part of your world. And, you know, for some people still today, uh, there's no, there's, I, I, I hate this word closure, to tell you the truth. I don't think that there is such a thing and it's it's a misnomer to pretend that there is. But there are people who don't know what happened. I mean, they know, but they don't know. I want to ask you a question about that because it's kind of a deep question, but and hopefully it comes out right. But how should we as individuals make sense of culturally traumatic events like 9-11 like wars, COVID, you know, how can we move forward and heal? Because I know someone whose daughter was working right by the World Trade Center and she survived, but her mom said she was never the same after that. You know, like something just shut off in her and she was permanently changed by the event. And like you said, you don't like the word closure. So what's a, a better word for for moving forward from this? Well, There are always, there will always be people who are brought low by traumatic experience and who never really recover. We as a society owe it to make their lives as comfortable or as easy as we can in that context. I don't think we do a great job of that. For me, I wrote my way through it. Not everybody can do that, but I do believe that telling stories is important. And, but there was a lot of 
censure going on about this event hmm. for a long time afterwards. The fact that you just said that all these stories are coming out now. This book was largely finished. This book is, was not finished in the way that it got published, but a lot of the work had been written by 10 years ago. Okay. I could not find a publisher. Wow. And I'm, I'm a well-published poet. Granted, to get published at all as a poet is like <laughs> not the easiest thing in the world. But even given that, there was no interest in going to this material, wow. whatever, in allocating resources to publish it, to put it out there. And there was an interest in hearing about it at readings, even in the arts community, which is supposed to be a community which is about communicating our deepest lived experiences. At least that's part of what poetry is. And in the last 20 years, I published two other collections that had nothing to do with 9-11. But I just kept trying. And I have to be honest and say that if this book had not been taken and brought out for the 20th century, for the 20th anniversary. I don't know if I might've given up. I'm a pretty stubborn person, but, and it represented a huge chunk of my middle years to write this, to learn how to do right by the material, which is, has a lot of challenges. Uh, but I think that the fact that we as a society in this country are so history averse that we are constantly looking at the next thing. In the past 20 years, there have been a lot of disasters and wars and death, some man-made, some naturally brought upon us. And if, if you think about, we have this sort of quick response, but it doesn't, it isn't sustained. And then we give the same quick response to the next thing that comes along. For example, I understand electricity in Puerto Rico is still not what it should be. And without electricity in the 21st century, you cannot rebuild your life. You cannot have jobs. You cannot have schools, especially in a, anyway. So I think that there was this, um, the thing that you experienced. I don't think anybody who lived in or near New York on 9-11 feels unchanged by it. That experience that you had of going in and wanting to pay homage and then just, you know, just looking at those pictures, that was paying homage. Let me tell you. The interesting thing to me, I'm, I'm wandering a little bit, but I'll come back, is that wherever, wherever I go, I mean, I live in California now, here, London, Chicago, anywhere, people connect to that day, but haven't had a chance to connect with it personally. Meeting someone who is there, who's willing to sort of share her experiences or talk about it, seems to be so cathartic. And this tells me that there is a well of suppressed, buried material, which prevents us from 
learning from it, from doing better, from figuring out these things. You know, one of the things that happened between 9-11 and Katrina, which besides the wars, which is a big besides, but was the first domestic tragedy that happened on large scale tragedy that happened closest to 9-11 was uh, to pay for the wars, they gutted FEMA. We got the good FEMA. The people in New Orleans got the stripped down FEMA. So we were, you know, we haven't really allocated our resources, our wealth to taking care of people. You know, part of before 9-11, my husband and I frequently spent time in Los Angeles, where I live now, for his work, largely. And he didn't want to move out here because of earthquakes. You know, if you live here, you become pretty blasé about it. Um, <laughs> but we didn't live here. And so we never became blasé about, you know, like a, a 3.4. We were like calling each other. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Most people, people wouldn't even notice it if they lived here. After 9-11, he said, I'll take natural disaster over man-made disaster. And we moved out here. And that helped me heal as well. How long did it take for you to art first articulate your experience into words? Like, When was the first time you started writing about it? How soon after? I didn't write anything for six months. Right after we moved back into the apartment in March, I got a call. I got invited to send work to the anthology that became Poetry After 9-11, an anthology of New York poets. And only people who were lived close by and in the area could contribute. In order to, and, and the friend that, that told me about it said, you have to, you have to write something. <laughs> it, this, your work has to be in there. As far as I know, I'm, I was the closest writer, the writer closest to the events in that anthology. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that at the time. And in order, to, <laughs> in order to send them something, I wrote two poems. I don't know how I did it in retrospect, to tell you the truth, because then it was another year before I wrote again. But I will tell you that as early as the night of September 11th, I saw my experiences as a journey and as an odyssey and as an oral history. I, I told that to my husband and he, he loved it. He loved it because it's the story that brought me back to him. I told it to my closest writer friend the end of October. And, but I was telling it to myself constantly because there was a sense that so much had been lost so many different things and people had been lost that i wanted to hold on to every little memory i had i have actually bins of, of material which we've moved to california which and I, for my recent when the book came out, I decided to put a page on my website about the book. And there's 
visual material. It's like a show and tell of some of that with descriptions of what it is. I didn't start work on what became the book until really fall of 2003. And um, I feel very lucky because I think what made it possible is that my husband was offered a seven-month job in London, which we took like in the blink of an eye because it would take us out of this life that was so painful and so difficult. And in London, I wrote the first real poems. Okay. And I, and it was for, for quite a while, my asthma was still not under control. Writing about something would revive the physical reaction to it. Wow. I would start coughing. My throat would constrict. I would get hives. And, you know, I was not in an environment which was literally triggering it, but my body would just go there. And so I would write, and then I would take almost a week to recover, and then I would write. And that went on for a couple of years. Hmm. And it was after that time in London when we went back to our apartment, hoping, thinking, oh, we'll go away, we'll come back, it'll be better, we'll be able to live here. We got back in the apartment, and we had been there maybe two weeks And we sat across from each other one morning over coffee. And Tom said to me, is this working for you? And I said, no. How about you? No. And within six weeks, we had decided to move. And within two months, we had moved. Wow. So, you know, we were sufficiently intact internally that we could make the decision and the gesture to, I call it the choose life gesture. I mean, it was, my husband was born in New York City. Leaving New York was really almost like amputating his past. (laughs) Right. But we also realized how important having a home where you feel safe is, which we no longer did. I mean, I don't know how you felt out in Long Island or wherever you were living. That river of smoke and debris. I saw that. I was aware of that. And we had friends in Brooklyn whose backyards, you know, it rained papers and personal things from the towers on their plants. You know, it was, and I actually have the closing poem in the in the in the main central sections of the book, which is about that day and the aftermath, ends with a poem about the dust ending up in the ocean. Would you be able to recite a poem from the book? I would read a poem from the book. So yeah. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe I'll read that poem since I just mentioned it. It's sure. not a long one. And it's not, it's not a narrative poem. It's more, but, you know, most of the book is about um, chronicling a present, which is now a past. I still write about it, but I write about it as the person I am now, mm-hmm. from the perspective I have now. 
partly because, like anybody who's experienced it, near or far, it's a frame of reference for everything that happens to you after. I'm diverging a little bit, but one of the more interesting conversations, I mean, this is very, thank you for asking me all the things that you've asked me. And most of them are things that, most of the questions are things that haven't been asked by other people. So that's why I hesitate sometimes when I, before I say anything. But, you know, there's two generations of people born since pretty much who either were too young to know it, to remember it, or have no memory of it. And yet they see this kind of swirling obsession with that day and don't understand why. Out here in California, there's, you know, a lot of military bases and it's a feeding ground of for soldiers who many, I think the highest number of soldiers who died in Afghanistan came from Southern California. Mm. It touches the community and it touches families uh, throughout California. So for their relatives, the wars are what's the crucial turning point in their lives. So I get asked by these kids, you know, why should I pay attention to this? You know, you know, I don't understand why are, you know, and I mean, for me, the answer is because the world changed, but especially this country changed on 9-11. Not only the wars, but a lot of things that have happened since then are the result of it, the de- destabilization of what used to be called the Middle East, the resulting civil wars and refugees and the immigrant crises and the immigrant crises coming up from the South because of global warming and the fact that people don't have enough to eat. And when there isn't enough to eat, then there's uh, people who try to control that and use it against other people. So um, this poem (laughs) starts in the past, but it looks to a very distant future, to the dust in our eyes, in the corner of a pocket under a bed, on top of books, behind them, along a windowsill. Trapped by screens, glass, suspended in the air. It sticks to needles and leaves, to branches, bark, shrubs, mulch, to soil. On puddles, it floats, in gutters, down streams to rivers flowing into the ocean until currents, slowing, can carry the load no longer. It drifts to the bottom of the sea, waits as mud, sediments compress solidify a record in stone, a world as once it was. Um, it's like the trajectory of that dust. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, when, it, when that image came to me of the, the fact that, 
I mean, it's an understatement to say long after any of us are gone to the extent that the planet continues to exist and the continents continue to exist as they are and the, and deep in the bottom of the sea, stone is being made from the past. Mm-hmm. So it made me sort of released something in me to have written that, to feel like no matter what we did or what happened, that would be there. Great. So anyway. Now let me ask you, have you visited since you've moved? Oh boy. <laughs> the short answer is no. I've gotten as close as south of Chambers Street. I've gotten to the a couple blocks from the northwest corner of the site. There's a wonderful poetry library there called Poet's House. Oh yes, I'm familiar. Yeah. And I I knew the former director well and sometimes I did research for a number of years, partly to confirm what I wanted to say was accurate and partly to flesh out what I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I would go down there and we would meet for coffee and talk about it. And she would say to me, do you want to go to the site? And I would just not want to go. I hoped that I've actually applied to the um, performance space in the museum because I think, I hope they want to give me a reading. And at that point, I'll have to hand, I'll have to deal with it. It's actually painful to me. I I know this sounds crazy. I didn't like the Twin Towers. (laughs) (laughs) I thought they were ugly. I have a poem in here about that. And it was quite strange living at the bottom of such <laughs> tall buildings. It was sort of absurd. And uh, and nonetheless, since they came down, I miss them. I miss the skyline. I hate the new building, which just seems to me to have whatever the Twin Towers didn't have visually. They had a delicacy and an elegance from afar. Now it's just this massive thing sticking up anyway but i feel like my journey won't be complete until i go there i but i am recently one of the two things happened um around the anniversary that really moved me there used to be a local newspaper small newspaper which called itself uh the battery park city broadsheet Mm -hmm. but it was the most reliable source of information before 9-11 of what was going on in Battery Park City and nearby. And then after 9-11, about a month afterwards, they resumed publication. And that was where we got the information about the air and the dust and the construction that we could rely on as opposed to the officials who were, you know, Sort of like what's gone on now. I don't think it was malevolent, but they didn't know and they didn't say they didn't know, which I said before. So there was a moving ground of information. It was very hard to make decisions and decide what to do. But the Battery Park City broadsheet was reliable. And out of curiosity, when the anniversary approached, I Googled them. And to my surprise, they were still publishing. 
So I wrote to the editor and I said, I live there then. I have this new book. Here are a few poems from it. And he immediately took one and published it in the issue that came out around the anniversary. And he and I have been exchanging a sort of wonderful emails. It's the same person who was the editor and the publisher 20 years ago. He too has a post 9-11 cancer. And, you know, he's offered me, uh, you know, to help me get a reading in the neighborhood when I want to go back. So I'll just have to get my strength together. The other thing that happened is that I grew up in Bergen County in a small town there, which funneled its fathers, but they were fathers at the time, mm-hmm. to Wall Street because that was where the commuter trains went from there, as opposed to Long Island where they went to Midtown or Westchester where they went to East Midtown. So most of my friend's fathers worked on Wall Street or near the what became the World Trade Center. And that town called Glen Rock, New Jersey, lost 11 people that morning. Wow. And in a small, it was one of the higher victim counts of the surrounding suburban towns. And I have a section about that town in the book. And those 11 people all researched thoroughly. And that the newspaper that we read then growing up was the Bergen Evening Record. And uh, which had a good reputation and won many awards. And uh, so I, if that's now been swallowed up by USA Today and is called North Jersey, I wrote to the op-ed page editor for them. And I said, I don't know what you're doing for 9-11, but I have these poems about this town and I grew up there. And he published four of them on the anniversary. Wow with a beautiful picture and it's they're available online. And so that to me felt in some ways, you know, though I haven't been back to the site and I haven't really been back to my building or the neighborhood, these gestures felt like the completion of the connection Mm -hmm. to the place and the people. I mean, I, you could probably tell either from talking to me or from reading my work, I don't write esoteric, obscure poetry. I write to communicate. I write to through communication to bring people together. So having this work appear locally is a connection to me that was, you know, very important. So anyway. Yeah, I was just wondering... You know, if you had gone back, I was, I can't imagine you're not going to be overwhelmed by emotion when you visit the 9-11 memorial site with the pools of water and they have the footprint holes. I mean, they really did a beautiful job, but it's a meditation when you go there, you know, and and it kind of gets, no matter how loud the area is and the area is beautiful. Now we went there every weekend for like the last five years. And, but as soon as you get to the pools of water, even though with the chattering and everything, there's still like a silence because the sound of the water is just rushing, you know, and I don't know who designed it, but it's, it's, it was a beautiful memorial, you know, and just to represent the, the loss of it. And along the sides of the entire memorial are all the people 
the names that were lost, the names yeah. of everybody. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah. a powerful, powerful uh, well, memorial I, site. I, thank you for telling me that. You're the first person who's described going to this as beautiful and moving. Um, and that's all, I'll tuck that away and it'll help me. I do feel a little remiss and not having the courage to go so far. And it's possible that I'm sure I'll be sort of devastated by it, but I guess, I mean, I, I've seen pictures of it. Of course, that's not the same as being there. It sounds like it's quite eloquent. And I know where the 11 people are in those sort of, they look like almost benches around the reflecting pools. I can't, I mean, people wouldn't sit on them, but, Mm -hmm. and, and maybe I know it all, I, I know that I'll go sometime in the next year because that also, like I was describing those two publications, I feel like I need to do that. And I'm, I'm really glad that it's doing what, what you described it doing. You know, part of what I remember was the, the horrible negotiations about what to do and people jockeying for power, different architectural geniuses with different concepts of what should be done or whether, you know, whether to rebuild and what to rebuild and would anybody want to work there and and I don't really know what the solution is. I mean, because, I mean, New York has so changed since the pandemic that it's really hard to say what will happen going forward. When the first World Trade Center went up, they couldn't rent it for love or money. It was considered to be a wasteland. Uh, and it was swept by winds off the Hudson, you know, year round, but in wintertime, it was brutal. And um, so the New York State, which, you know, was a big owner of the Port Authority, which built the towers, took a lot of floors in it. And in uh, before I moved down there in the, I got a fishing license on one of the high floors, which is the only time that I was saw from the inside what the windows looked like so that I could imagine what it was like for the people who were trying to, who would rather jump than stay inside. So it's, I was there when the first bombing happened. And one of the things that was destroyed in the second attack was this small memorial to the people who died in that bombing. The 93 was, one, right? Yeah, which was tucked in a corner of that windswept plaza. And, you know, you, it's it's almost impossible to find out information about that memorial or those people because their loss was subsumed in a greater loss. But I feel for their families who, <laughs> you know, they had a place. And now they don't have a place anymore. So I'll take in what you said about the new site, the site, and sort of live with it for a while. And then I'll get my courage up uh, and do it. So 
if you do, please, uh, please email me your experience. If, if you do decide okay. to go, I'd, okay. I'd be very curious, but uh, it is going to be overwhelming because I, it's overwhelming for me and I didn't live directly in the area, but it's the ongoing rushing water that I find really symbolic, you know, it just never ends the rushing water and it's, and it's, but I think it's beautiful. And then you'll also have that juxtaposed with sort of all the new people who it didn't directly touch and the laughing and the chattering around because people are just having a nice day out at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's a tourist <laughs> destination. It's something right. to do in New York. Right. Yeah, that was actually hard in the <laughs> months that we lived there. That had started already. People wanted to gawk. People, first of all, people wanted to pay homage and pay homage by mm -hmm. going to look at the site. But of course, what you saw then was a chain link fence with a lot of debris and dust, you know, and so it wasn't very rewarding as a site. It wasn't like two pools of rushing water. Right. <laughs> um, but I think that there is an impulse to visit these places. I know I'm of a generation that of people who fought in Vietnam and or of who protested against the war in this case. And but I knew some soldiers and I it was important to me to go to the Maya Lin Memorial in DC and look at the names mm -hmm. in the in the stone in the in the earth which i think is just incredibly beautiful so i'm hopeful from what you said that i'll get something of that from this mm -hmm. um so anyway i i uh i thank you for telling me about that you're quite welcome we're just about out of time i had a bunch more questions about poetry but i think we had a <laughs> Gee, somehow we didn't get there at all <laughs> We had a productive conversation, though, I think. So I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. If people wanted to buy September 12 or your other books or follow you online, where can they go about doing all that? Well, uh, the books are all available at Amazon on Amazon, also through my distributor and my publisher, but Amazon's the fastest, easiest way to find them. Um, I have a website, andrewcarterbrown.com, which... You know, I like it when people go there. I, it's a pretty good portrait of me, my work, what I'm interested in, what's coming up next. I am on, I guess it's still called Facebook. I don't know. I haven't been there <laughs> since, since that crazy new name. And I'm on a Twitter and Insta Instagram as Andrea Brown Poet because Carter was a couple letters too far. So I had to come up with something else. Right. And through my website, there's a contact page. I'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes. Andrea Carter-Brown, thank you for sharing your powerful story and coming on the Story King podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being such a wonderful host and person with whom to converse about this. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Andrea Carter-Brown. All of her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. 
Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You can choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. Until then.